Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The Me Too movement has taken on the issue of sexual abuse and harassment in the workplace and elsewhere, largely through social media. It spawned a sister movement called Hashtag Church Too, which focuses on similar abuses within the church. There has been a number of disturbing revelations and scandals showing it to be more widespread than we might think. Joining me by phone to talk about it is R. Marie Griffith, the director of the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University. She is also the author of Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. Marie, so nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me, Don. Well, let's get right to it. How significant and widespread is sexual abuse within the church? Well, I think what we're discovering is that it's far more widespread than anyone uh, has probably recognized, other than maybe some of the the women themselves who have been victims of this and have found other circles of people to talk to. It's extremely widespread. Uh, You know, one thing I think about is how long we've known about the the abuse scandal in the Catholic churches. So that's not new news. Mm -hmm. We've known about all that since at least the early 90s, if, if not before. But, you know, what is new here is the media spotlight that's being shined on on Protestant churches, and and particularly evangelical churches. So it is more prevalent in the evangelical churches? Well, I don't know if it's more prevalent, uh, but that's where we're seeing more and more of the cases today. It'd be an interesting question to know. I, I certainly have heard of numerous cases within the more liberal and progressive Protestant churches as well. But right now, what seems to be happening is an uncovering of, of cover-ups uh, that have taken place in many evangelical churches across the country, and that's really generated fuel for the uh, Church Two movement. Why this uncovering now? Is it, do you think, a, a direct association with the Me Too movement and the fact that women have been uh, empowered? Absolutely. You know, the the Me Too movement, of course, got underway after the scandals with Harvey Weinstein and some of the celebrities, Louis C.K. and all of these. And this became just almost an overnight sensation via Twitter and, and celebrities who were sort of tweeting about their experiences. And I think it was around mid-November that a couple of women in evangelical circles who were victims of sexual abuse uh, from, I think, uh, their youth pastors or other pastors in their congregations started this hashtag, Church2, that, that really came directly out of that. And again, overnight, this thing went viral. I mean, I think far more than these women expected it would. And all around the country, Women of all ages have been sharing, uh, you know, often very tragic stories of being groomed by pastors, even as they're teenagers, and uh, being in sexual relationships that were, you know, supposed to be hidden, and, and uh, all sorts of damage, I think, that's been wreaked over time. And, and then the number of male leaders uh, who have not taken these things seriously when they've been approached by these, these women. Although a number have resigned. They have, they have, but it it took a while. (laughs) You know, it took an awful lot of pressure, and many of them now are resigning over cases that occurred decades ago. And many of the cases uh, that we're learning about have been covered up uh, for a very long time. And I think that's the most disturbing 
part about this. No one is surprised that sexual abuse happens. It happens in all sectors of our society, in any profession, it, it, it happens. But the sort of degree of covering up and protecting abusers over their victims, I think this is what's raised so, so much, um, you know, dismay and disgust, frankly, with uh, church leadership. And you can't escape the the uh, issue of hypocrisy here. When we have people on the one hand um, preaching Christian values and on the other hand behind closed doors doing what's going on, it's... Uh, couldn't be more hypocritical. Uh, that's exactly right. I think that's also you know, part of this feeling of disgust is, how could you, how could the Church be doing this? Uh, I think the other kind of theological underpinnings of a lot of these evangelical churches that are relevant here uh, is purity culture, you know, the notion of virginity and especially women's purity being very, very important, female modesty, and along with that has gone a theology of female submission to male authority in the most conservative evangelical churches and the Southern Baptist and other places where these scandals are, are sort of erupting right now. And, you know, these things really matter and are getting a lot of attention because they seem to really reinforce this notion that, that women must be subordinate to men in all things and that if something happens to them at the hands of a male leader, uh, that's just meant to be, and they're supposed to sort of take it. So it's, it's really distressing to think of the way that I would say Christian theology has been abused, frankly, and distorted to, uh, to, to sort of help this enable this culture to persist. And many of these people, uh, both uh, congregants and also leadership within the church, are politically active, and many of them support the President of the United States, who carries a lot of baggage along these lines himself, and they continue to support him. That's right. And, of course, um, why the evangelical continued evangelical support for so many of his policies or so many things that he said or, or just support for him, despite all kinds of behavior that's been, you know, verified many times over and that is, is not uh, sanctioned by, by anything uh, within the Christian tradition. That's been a question, you know, why have evangelicals continued to support him at such very high rates? And I think this is offering a partial explanation that actually what we're discovering, very sadly, I, I must say, is a lot of what you rightly call hypocrisy, and, and a lot of sexual misbehavior and covering up of sexual misbehavior behind the scenes. And, you know, you just think that's got to have created uh, the sense of toleration and tolerance for that sort of behavior in the highest leaders of the land. Do you have any sense, and it's early on, of course, that the Church Two movement could uh, really have any impact not only in stopping the abuses, but in, in shaking this kind of willingness to, to tolerate this sort of thing at the higher levels? Well, that's interesting. And in terms of the churches, I absolutely do. I think we're seeing all kinds of impact. I think women are becoming emboldened, and men too, because I, I, I should say this is not only female uh, victims. There are male victims as well of the, this kind of sexual abuse. Paul Pressler, the Southern Baptist uh, uh, leader, has been credibly accused of numerous uh, sexual assaults and, and harassment of young men. 
so it's not just women, but I do think that as people become more and more emboldened and churches are sort of in the spotlight and being forced to make public statements and change policies, and, and I think many willingly, I don't want to just say force, I think many are, are, are very open and very much welcoming these changes, that things will and are changing within the churches. Now, the larger culture, you know, that's, that's a tougher nut to crack, and whether or not that will translate, so, so far we're not seeing that translate into any kind of diminished loyalty uh, for the president or any increased criticism for his own um, past sexual misbehavior and, and um, you know, possible assault and possible criminal activity. So I don't know if we'll see that or not. You know, you mentioned the president, and and rightly so, I think. But we should also point out there are a great many other politicians who have had to step aside as a result of uh, allegations against them. It's not just uh, one man at the top of this pyramid. Well, that's right. Our own uh, former governor, of course, uh, Eric Brighton, had to step down. and, And there are many other examples of that. You're right. And, you know, would they have had to step down five years ago before a movement like this had had gotten underway? It's hard to say. Uh, But certainly in this moment, it's a bad moment (laughs) to be called out for sexual abuse and assault if if you're in a very public position like that. You've indicated, and we all know that this sort of thing has gone on forever, I suppose, to one degree or another. But why do you think it is is seemingly so prevalent now? Is it is it just the media focusing on it, or is something going on in our society that uh, is causing this to happen? Well, I, I, I that's a that's a good question. Um, I suppose I am inclined to see this largely as a because the media is shining a light on it. We're learning all of these things that have been happening for a very, very long time. Um, so I don't see this as a new problem or that somehow Southern Baptist and other evangelical pastors of younger generations are, are taking, newly taking advantage of women. But I do think that we've got this spotlight shined on this and far more Americans care about these issues and are willing to speak about them. There's less stigma attached these days to saying, I have been the victim of a sexual assault. And so that has enabled far more people to come forward. I, I think that's really the shift that we're seeing. Is, uh, Maria, is there a, a generational component to this? Uh, are we talking about the abusers being primarily older men or uh, younger no, I, I think it, it cuts across generational lines, as far as I can tell. I mean, I, you know, news stories about this are coming up all the time. And I follow a few journalists in Texas and elsewhere who are really, their focus right now is investigating charges of sexual abuse in the churches. And they are focusing on cases of ministers of all ages. A, a disturbing number of youth pastors, which I mentioned a few minutes mm-hmm. ago, and, you know, that... Um, you know, there's something deeply disturbing to me about all of this, but, but maybe in particular the idea of a youth pastor, someone who is counseling teenagers and children during very difficult stages of their lives, many of them having trouble with their parents or in school or with drugs. You know, these people are very, very important to the, the formation of young adults. And the fact that we're learning about so many cases of youth ministers grooming 
younger people and uh, these vulnerable young women and men who look up to them and, um, you know, assaulting them in this way is just horrifying. Uh, Maria, I'm going to have to take a break. We'll do that now. But before I take the break, let me invite members of our listening audience who would like to get into this conversation. We'd very much like to hear from you. Perhaps you have some experience along these lines or questions you'd like to ask of Marie Griffith. Uh, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org. Or if you'd prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. My guest is Marie Griffith, the director of the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and politics at Washington University. Back to continue the conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back to our conversation about hashtag Church2. Marie, you had indicated earlier uh, and suggested that this was uh, not unlike what has been going on in the Catholic Church for a long time. Do you you think they are equivalent in in their scope? Well, you know what I think. I think that they are very similar in the, the kind of attempt to cover up people and and you know the, these leaders who are abusing. One of the most disturbing things, you know, that I think we've seen in the Catholic Church's abuse scandal is how deeply uh, men, priests, and other uh, clergy were protected and, you know, moved from parish to parish and at the expense of children who therefore were abused over and over again. And the cases that we're seeing come out right now in the Protestant churches, uh, you know, have a a close relationship to that. Now, Protestant churches don't have the full system of hierarchical leadership that the Catholic Church do. The structures are very different. But you still see this attempt to silence these allegations. You know, I think there's an assumption we can handle this ourselves. We don't want to bring shame to the institution, and so, you know, we'll, we'll handle this. I don't think it's necessarily always indifference to the, the sinful behavior of, of these men, but I do think it's a misguided desire to handle things quietly, handle it internally, and forget that a lot of these things, they're not just sins, they're crimes. And to fail to report them to law enforcement is to ignore or even disobey the law. So that's what I, I do very much see parallels um, in, in, those, uh, in those types of handling of these allegations. Uh, are there any leaders out there within the Church who are not being quiet about it, who are you know, uh, pounding their desks and saying something has to be done about this. I, I, I frankly can't think of any at the moment. I'd love to see a leader pound his desk and say <laughs> that. Um, but leaders within the Church, I don't. Now, so the Southern Baptist uh, is an example that I know well. That's the denomination I grew up in, and, and they've had a number of cases that have come to light lately that have gotten a lot of media attention. Um, and when the Southern Baptist Convention met a few weeks ago, they knew they needed to address this situation. And what they did was very interesting, because 
they passed a couple of resolutions on women that they thought would be their way of addressing it. It is their way of addressing it. But in the body of those statements, they also reaffirmed what they see as the biblical doctrine of complementarianism, that is, that wives should submit graciously to their husbands. There's this notion, again, of female subordination to male authority. And as long as you hold on to that as sort of a core doctrinal issue, my worry is these abuse cases happen over and over again and that people find ways to justify them. Um, so that's the interesting thing. They're trying to stand up and say, we renounce sexual abuse, we deplore this. But I'm not sure the statements they're making yet are nearly strong enough to be able to do that effectively. Not to pick on the Southern Baptists, but I've, you grew up in that church, as you just said, and I've read some of the things you've written about it. A far different church during your, your uh, upbringing, if you will, than it is today, it would seem to me. Oh, absolutely. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and, um, you know, the gender, for instance, was just not an issue that we ever talked about. I never heard the term female submission uh, to male authority, and I was in a pretty conservative church in, in Tennessee. Um, it really wasn't until uh, the, the 80s and then especially the 90s that female submission became codified in Baptist doctrine through a statement that, that actually was only passed in 1998, saying that wives should submit graciously to their husbands. And ever since then, this sort of gender ideology has been, in many ways, a driving force for Southern Baptists in their ways of thinking about politics, in their support of particular policies and politicians. And that simply wasn't the case uh, when I was growing up. If I may ask, and you may not want to answer the question, why, why did you leave that church? It was in part over these issues. I, my growing up years occurred during the years when um, what we term sort of some of the fundamentalist leaders were managing to make those changes that I've just described. And there were a lot of folks in my generation who were deeply distraught by that. And so many of us left for other uh, Baptist denominations. A lot of Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, left and um, moved into the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and other Baptist organizations. So I, I was part of a trend of people yeah. who, who didn't really, uh, who, who felt that it was a distortion of the faith. What about women uh, hierarchy within the church? Is that is that an oxymoron? I mean, is there any uh, are there any women in these in these uh, denominations that uh, do have lead? I know in the Episcopal faith, your faith, uh, that uh -huh. has been the case. But what about elsewhere? Are women reaching the point where they can have an influence on some of this stuff? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, women in the ministry has been a long-fraught issue, and all the denominations have had to deal with this in one way or another. And uh, we could spend all day discussing the sort of uneven progress in different denominations uh, in, in ways that that's happened. But you're absolutely right that uh, I believe the more you have women's voices highlighted, in uh, settings such as closed-the-board meetings and group meetings and, you know, uh, the room where it happens, as it were, uh, the more you're going to have people standing up and speaking about these issues. So Southern Baptists have had a very difficult time in recent decades 
supporting women at the highest levels of leadership. That could be about to change. That could be one shift that Southern Baptists are willing cautiously to make uh, because they know they need to take some action on this. But you're absolutely right. I, I think that the more open to women's leadership the denominations are, the, the more vigorous the response is when when these situations of abuse do occur. I want to get into that in a broader sense in just a moment. But first, let's talk about what else has to happen now. I mean, certainly bringing women into the into the fray would uh, would be good and would be important. What else do you think can be done to reverse this trend? Sure. Well, you know, I think that one thing that's very simple is that pastors and people who are training to be pastors need to be more familiar with the law. I've been very struck by the number of men I've seen, young pastors, who said, never when I was in seminary did anyone raise the issue of what I should do if an abuse allegation came my way. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what the law requires. So, you know, there's just a vast amount of ignorance, and this is probably true in education and academia and and many other um, professions as well, but there's just a lack of understanding, what do I do if someone comes to me? And so individual pastors are forced to kind of just create decisions on the fly, handle the stuff without any real knowledge of what they ought to do. So I think educating people about the law about their responsibility, about what to look out for. Um, All of those are simple changes that could be made at the seminary level and at the local congregational level as well as the denominational level. Uh, The social media obviously can be uh, a very important factor in all of this. I I have to tell you, quite frankly, until we were getting ready for this program, I really didn't have any idea what the the, the Church 2 movement was all about. I don't live in a a vacuum, but I suspect a lot of people aren't even aware of it. That's fascinating. Uh, You know, this is the problem with social media, is that for those who are on it and who feel like they're part of this big movement— it feels like everything. It feels like the whole world must be talking about this. And you're absolutely right. The, 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 the reality is that is one kind of club almost, and it's not necessarily permeating everywhere. So that's, that's very, very important to remember. We shouldn't, these things can't only be spread through social media. Educational campaigns and other sorts of things need to be spread in a whole variety of ways. And an occasional radio program, too, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Good for you, Don. <laughs> I'd like to sort of change the subject just for the couple of minutes that we have left, because uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the, the emerging power of women. This is supposed to be the year of women. Uh, we had the Women's March after the inauguration of, uh, of Donald Trump. Where are we, do you think, in this whole world of women emerging as a more powerful group than certainly has been the case uh, heretofore? Sure. Well, you know, if you look, for instance, at the numbers of women who are running for office right now, at the local and state levels especially, but also at the national level, uh, the rise was really phenomenal this year compared to just a couple of years ago. Now, that could also be a blip. We saw that kind of rise in the years after uh, Anita Hill's accusations against Clarence Thomas, that following election, you know, Uh, got a lot of new women into office, and then the numbers sort of leveled out again. 
So it's hard for me to say at this point that you could see anything like a trend that may be sustaining over time. But the Women's March and other marches like that around issues from climate change uh, to gun reform to Black Lives Matter, all sorts of things, and the numbers of women who are participating in those movements, that feels pretty massive. And it does feel like the sort of thing that it's very difficult to imagine uh, women and, and men, too, who are part of these movements suddenly sitting down and deciding these things don't matter anymore. This, this whole uh, resist movement at the moment feels very strong to me. Um, so I do see this sustaining at least for the foreseeable future for some time. I remember listening to you uh, on Terry Gross's program uh, several months ago, uh, talking about mm-hmm. your book, Moral Combat. And I reacquainted myself with that uh, because I was impressed with it then and w- wanted to review it. And one of the things that just jumped out at me was the comments you made about Phyllis, Phyllis Schlafly and the impact that she had. I, mean, I, guess, I guess we all knew this, but you laid it out so well of the wedge she drove between progressives and conservatives that exists and has widened uh, to this day. Absolutely. You know, I, I think I, I said uh, Phyllis Schlafly to me is one of the most important and, and influential people of the 20th century. Um, of course, she lived into the 21st, but she is absolutely underestimated uh, as a force in our history. You know, she was the main critic and um, opponent of the Equal Rights Amendment mm-hmm. in the 1970s, and many people in my generation and younger forget that, don't even know what the ERA was. But she was enormously important to that effort and, um, and to just sort of a broad array of anti-feminist um, efforts politically over many, many decades until, until her death. And, um, yes, she was, uh, so, so St. Louis and this uh, Alton, Illinois, our mm-hmm. whole, whole region, uh, birthed one of the most influential uh, historical figures um, in, in all of these issues that we see today, and, and one of the most divisive, whose legacy really in part is uh, to leave this incredibly divided uh, country. Well, she put religion and politics in the same basket, and uh, that takes us back to square one where we started today. Absolutely. Marie Griffith, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Marie is the uh, director of the John Danforth Center for Religion and Politics here at Washington University. Thank you so much, and enjoy your time where you are. (laughs) Thank you, Don. Appreciate you having me. Great, great talking to you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. 